Well, I wonder, what does your future hold? What does your future hold? Now, for a 17-year-old, Red Gerard, his future became gold early with this Olympics after winning our nation's first medal. And yet, if you know something of his own story, you know that the morning didn't look initially all that promising because 17-year-old Red was up late the night before and he fell asleep before Netflix. And then he slept in inadvertently. His own roommate had to wake him up, right, as he slept late. Presumably, this is the day he's prepared for his entire brief life. So he rushes to the slopes, late for his event, only to find he doesn't have his jacket. And he's got to borrow a jacket from someone else. And at that point, perhaps every parent in the room is thinking, so it's not just my teenager. <laughs> but then Red saunters right up to the start, and he just lays down what looked to be an almost flawless run, he wins the gold medal, right? Great future, it looks like, ahead for Red, but for the United States Olympic team as a whole, it's been a bit of a face plan. We brought the largest squad ever, over 240 athletes, but through yesterday, we had as many Alpine medals as Liechtenstein. One. And they have a nation of 37,000 people, about half the population of Fayetteville. But if you've been paying attention this week, Elon Musk's future is soaring, literally, after he launched the largest rocket ever by a private company, right, complete with this cherry red Tesla on top. Unfortunately, though, for that Tesla and for Starman, that's the mannequin we've all seen driving that Tesla, it overshot its orbit a little bit, and it's now heading about 18,000 mile an hour for the asteroid belt. Now, the stock market, that's a little bit less clear. Right, the Dow's reeling after two 1,000-point losses earlier this month, leaving many to wonder, is this a sign of, of perhaps things to come? Right, I just share all these stories just as reminders that our futures are often unpredictable. We can't foresee them. Perhaps that's why many millennials, according to a recent article in the New York Times, many millennials are looking to astrology. So when Coco Lane, a Brooklyn-based producer, meets someone these days. She says the first question that often comes up in conversation is, it's not where do you live, and it's, it's not what do you do, but, but what's your sign? What's your sign? And according to the article, more than half of millennials believe astrology is a science. Just let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> Leading the author of the article to wonder if they've confused astrology with astronomy. All right, Elon Musk could help them. Either way, the psychic services industry, over $2 billion a year and growing, which partially explains why horoscopes, when I was growing up, like just in tabloids, these days they're in our nation's largest media and publications. All because, again, why? we want to know what our future holds. We want to know our place in this world. We're looking for meaning. We're looking for purpose. To quote one horoscope writer, most people are shell-shocked right now. They're in pain. The world is devastating. People are exhausted. And the purpose of the horoscope at that point becomes a bit of a, a spiritual touchstone. A spiritual touchstone. That sounded so nice. I decided to look my own horoscope up. I didn't realize this. I'm an Aquarius, apparently. So I looked it up in the local paper here, and it reads this. You're self-sufficient. In fact, you're the expert when it comes to fulfilling your own needs. Now, theologically, I think that's true. But I don't actually think that's very good. 
But when you accept the gifts and help of others, you fit into their lives better. The sense of belonging will bring you tremendous joy. All right, there it is. There apparently is my, my future right there. I just want to ask the question, can we do any better than that? Anything more concrete, anything more specific, anything more certain? Friends, those questions turn us back to our study in the book of Amos. If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn there now. Amos, we're going to be the closing verses of chapter 9. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, you can find Amos chapter 9. I believe it's on page 771 on those red Bibles in the seat back before you, page 771. Now, if you just happen to be joining with us, well, this is the last of our study in this book. It's uh, about the 8th century B.C., so it's, this is about the time the Greeks are settling Spain. It's about 200 years after King David has had his sort of glorious reign in Israel, following a costly civil war, right? Israel's now divided between north and south as we come to Amos. But the northern kingdom has undergone of a renaissance of sorts, right? GDP has rebounded. The stock market is up. Some of the dilapidated farms Right, have given way to all these new fancy subdivisions. Right, German cars now dot the landscape. Things are looking up for Israel. But of course, as we looked a bit closer in this book, all of that wealth has been bankrolled by what? By financial fraud, by rigged courts, by political corruption. Israel's even trafficking her own people. So God's people, again, were supposed to be a spiritual billboard to the nations, Right? This is what God is like, look at us. But instead, they seem to be sort of a world leader in human rights abuses. Now, no just God would sit idly by, unmoved by the suffering. And so what does God do? He commissions Amos. And Amos really comes with a withering message to God's people. Chapter 1 and 2, we saw that all are accountable to God and none will escape the judgment of God. Right? So any notions we have of personal autonomy, right, they melt before this God of unparalleled sovereignty in Amos. Right? One day we'll all stand before him. We'll give an account of our lives. In chapters 3 to 6, we saw how presuming upon the favor of God, as Israel did, as we so often do, that actually makes one an enemy of God. And then in chapters 7 through 9, 10, we saw two weeks ago, Right, we witnessed the most sobering verses as the whole book, as we saw the wrath of God falls on the people of God who reject the word of God. So nine and a half punishing chapters thus far in Amos. It's as if last week God gave us a bit of a break after those punishing chapters. A little bit of ice storm, gather ourselves, we've come back. Will that have the last word? Is there a future for Israel? And what might Israel's future, in fact, teach us about our own future? Right, so one last time, Amos is going to stand back behind that pulpit. We're going to pick up his final sermon, Amos 9, beginning in verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, 
And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. And they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, friends, we have to admit, this is not the ending we expected, right? Nine and a half chapters of Dante, and we get Disney here to close. Now, some have suggested, actually, these verses, therefore, they couldn't have come from Amos. Couldn't have been him. It doesn't sound like Amos. But, friends, we've got to recognize judgment for judgment's sake. That's never God's ideal. As you read through the Bible, you see that. Throughout Amos, in fact, there have been hints that judgment wouldn't be the final word. So back in chapter 5, verse 15, Amos said to them, hate evil and love good, establish justice in the gate, and it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Or even two weeks ago, chapter 9, verse 8, the Lord said that he would utterly destroy the the sinful kingdom from the surface of the ground. He will do that, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. So for those who persist in unrepentant sin, 9-9, he says he's going to sift his people like a sieve. Right? None will escape. But yet for the rest, there is still this word of hope. So I think you can summarize these final verses. The blessings of God are secured for the people of God who trust in the promises of God. There it is. The blessings of God are secured for the people of God who trust in the promises of God. And so to help us better understand this text, I just want to ask three questions of it this morning. Questions I think we should ask of the text. Number one, what does the future hold? First question I want us to ask, what does the future hold? Number two, whose future will it be? Whose future will it be? And then lastly, is the future secure? Is this future secure? Those are our three questions. So off to that first question. What does the future hold? Right? What does the future hold? Now verses 13 to 15 really paint a beautiful picture of abundance and of blessing. Days, verse 13, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. Now listen, I grew up in cities and beaches. So one of the challenges when I come to the prophets and a lot of the Bible is that I don't have a context for these images of farming and sheep. Now maybe some of you do, but the extent of my farming is like walking through a corn maze. I just don't have much of a background. But in ancient Israel, right, you'd generally plow October through November, then you'd harvest in April and May. So if the plowman is overtaking the reaper, it means the reapers, which are supposed to harvest in April and May, are still out harvesting all throughout the summer. So that when fall comes, they're still trying to gather in the crop. It's a picture of tremendous abundance and blessing. Like the kind of yield that would make you know, scientists at Monsanto like just drool. Like, wow, so much. The same with the grapes. Right? Workers are still stomping last year's grapes as the planting season for the following year arrives. Now, images like this, we can run right over them because we live in a nation and in a time where actually as a country, we produce more food than we can consume. Right? We get upset when Sam's Club runs out of our favorite 
like flavored water, or, you know, snacks, whatever, fruit bars or something. Right, but that, that kind of abundance, that's unthinkable to Amos' own readers. And, you know, such famine that was common for them has been common for many. You know, we've, you would learn to live with the constant pangs of hunger. And that famine still exists in many parts of the world today. North Korea, Chad, Yemen, Sudan, Venezuela, all known, racked by famine. It wasn't have been uncommon in Israel's own day. It's not exactly the same, but even in Arkansas, you know, we are, I think, state 49 on when it comes to like food security, which means we're one of the most food insecure states within our own nation. The point is, in this image, is that shelves in the stores are overflowing. There's plenty and there's abundance, no more shortages, no more famines, right? No more food insecurity. It's like Trader Joe's, you know, everything you could ever want right there without having to go to Tulsa. Mountains drip with sweet wine, right? We read about that as well, this sort of picture of rolling hills and lush vineyards. You think Napa Valley or Tuscany, Italy or Bordeaux, France or, I don't know, Alma, Arkansas, whatever, whatever works for you. Even the hills shall flow with it. They literally melt with wine. So out of these mountain streams and out of these springs, it's these images of like Cabernets and Zins and Pinots and Merlots all flowing down the mountain. So I'm not a wine guy, but like this is a venter's paradise. Which is just interesting to note as we, as we think about this, that in the scriptures, you actually wine is regularly used to depict God's blessings to his people. It's a picture of his blessing, part of the covenant blessings of Deuteronomy 7 as well. It's a common picture of Israel's own restoration and the prophets to have land teeming with wine. We see Jesus turning water to wine at Cana. It's a picture of the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. It's a picture of the Lord's Supper we're going to be thinking about in a few minutes, where wine is associated with that long-awaited kingdom of God, with the perfection of all things. You know, it's one of the reasons why, as a pastor, I don't think alcohol is categorically sinful. Now, obviously, the abuse of it is. The scriptures have a lot to say about that. Even our own society has recognized the, the kind of havoc that alcohol abuse creates. $250 billion a year, the CDC estimate, in lost productivity, early mortality, health care costs. That's a, that's a crazy number, $250 billion a year. It's astronomical, not to mention the even greater societal costs in terms of broken marriages, broken families, broken bodies through alcohol abuse. That's why there are so many warnings in the scriptures about the abuse and the addictive effects of alcohol, right? Who doesn't inherit the kingdom of God according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6? Drunkards don't. Drunkards don't. It's that serious. And for an evening as we recognize it's a picture of the kingdom, we also have to recognize that it should be a sobering reminder to us, right? Some of us need to cut it off lest we ourselves be cut off from the Lord, and how it can be abused. It's why I have great respect for those who abstain, including some of my very best friends. And yet at the same time, we should be careful not to measure one's faithfulness to God by whether they are themselves abstaining from something that God calls a blessing. It's another good thing to keep in mind because that can breed a kind of legalism that while not dangerous physically, can be deadly spiritually. 
We don't watch out for it. But there's more to the restoration, right? Cities that have ruined or rebuilt, verse 14. There's the, the bounty of the vineyards, and now this is theirs to enjoy. And none of these images that Amos uses are accidental, because back in 511, we read how they actually wouldn't inhabit their houses, that they wouldn't drink their wine. Amos 4.9, how their gardens, here they're eating the fruit, but back there they're going to be struck with blight and mildew. How the Lord would withhold rain and actually bring famine on the land in Amos 4.7. So all these closing verses are a reversal. It's a picture of restoration. Right? All the raised cities and all the rotting crops that have defined Amos, all of that is reversed in these closing verses. Even the land, verse 15, the land being tangible proof that Israel's the Lord's people, land that meant security and blessing, right? To lose it meant they had lost the Lord. To gain it back means they have him, and he's saying they're going to be planted. It's a clear, and it's a powerful vision of, of a future where there is health, and there's vitality, and there's life, and there's abundance, an abundance that suggests that all is again well between God and man. As you read and you reflect on it, what you see is Amos is, is picturing a kind of Eden restored, right? Where fields aren't covered with thorns and thistles, where workers don't struggle by the sweat of their brow, where the, the curse of the fall is no more. But notice what he says, verse 13, these are days that are coming. They're days that are coming. They're not what Israel should expect in their day. As we trace Israel's history, it's not really a day that Israel would experience in their own sort of modern nation state. You know, it's, it's a day that we don't even experience exactly today. It's a future day. Amos is pointing us beyond our own day, not our best life now. No, the, the abundant life is the blessed life, absolutely. Next life, though. It's the next life. It's a future hope. It's a glorious one, but it's a future one. Okay, but whose future will it be? That's the second question I want us to ask. Whose future, this glorious future is painted, who is it? Whose is it for? Whose will it be? Well, if we look at the verses, clearly it has something to do with this booth of David. Maybe you notice that in verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. Now that booth seems to be a reference to the house of David. But Amos uses that word booth as in sort of a shelter or as in a hut, you know, almost like a lean-to. I think he uses that expression booth to emphasize how weak and how fragile the once powerful Davidic kingdom had become. So at one level, Amos is saying these blessings are going to come to the future kings of Israel who, like David, would follow after God's own heart. But it's more than that. It's more than that because it points to, I think, a king in particular who fulfills the promises that God gave to David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. God said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It won't be a little booth, a little hut. It's going to be a house established forever. Friend, that wasn't David. That wasn't Solomon. That wasn't of the later kings that would come. 
It was someone greater, someone Isaiah 9 heralds. Verses 6 and 7, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David, you hear 2 Samuel 7, over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. From this future that Amos is pointing to, it's a future in Jesus. It's in Jesus. How did Jesus ride in Jerusalem? But on Palm Sunday, like the final king was supposed to, right on a donkey, Zechariah 9. It's why when the people cried out, Hosanna to the son of David, right, the chief priests got so incensed when they made that cry because they understood what Jesus was claiming and what the people were proclaiming about this Jesus as David's greater son, the fulfillment of all their prophetic hopes. So the booth of David, I think that Amos is promising God will will raise up, it points to Jesus, right? The second Adam who conquered sin's curse by conquering the grave and ushering in everlasting life. So friend, recognize the blessings that Amos points to here. They're not gonna be found by living in this life, by living for this life. I think the longer you live in this world, the longer you do, the more you understand this kind of weakness, the limitations of this world, right? It can't make you finally happy. It can't fully fulfill you. It's it's filled with death and loss and grief and the grave. It's not to say life is hopeless, not at all, not at all. It's just to, to note that the many joys that we know sometimes feel more like footnotes among also the many pains and sorrows and regrets. You know, sometimes life feels a little bit like the gift at the white elephant exchange. It's not worthless. It's just not exactly what you hoped it would be. It's why Jesus would say, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Friend, if you've been looking to this life to provide you with all your meaning, with all your purpose, and you are frustrated, the Bible's saying you shouldn't be surprised. You weren't meant to find it here, in this life. You were meant to find it in the one who made you, the one who then died on a cross to save you, and the one who would rise again to deliver you. That's the one in whom you find your meaning and purpose and fulfillment. Right? This glorious future, it's found in Jesus. It's found in him. And yet Jesus was raised, verse 12. He was raised with a purpose. Pick that up. So that, why? So that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. All right, who's Amos addressing here? Who's who's he speaking of? Well, clearly the descendants of Esau, right? Those whom were often in close contact and conflict with Israel. And so Edom, as you read through the scriptures, often becomes a picture It's a word that's sort of meant to represent all that's hostile to God, all that's at war with God, hostile to his kingdom. So Amos is saying there's going to be a remnant of those who once stood like Edom in rebellion against God, but now they'll now become the possession of this descendant of David, as well as all the nations who are called by my name. You know, in the Old Testament, to be called by the Lord's name, that's an expression of intimacy. It's an expression of ownership. To be called by God's name, that's like the lapel pin of of every Israelite. 
It would be the, what would be written on the dedication plaque into their own temple. It was the defining privilege of the Israelites. It was sort of their national motto. And Amos is saying, in that day, that's going to be applied to all the nations, not just to Israel, but to all. So this future, it's not just for the remnant of Israel, but it's the remnant of all God's people across the globe. That's who this future is for. Now, we read Acts 15 earlier, and we read that intentionally, because when the early church was trying to discern is the gospel for Jews and Gentiles, right, James stands up. And what does he do? He quotes Amos 9.12. He quotes these very verses. And he's saying, guys, God's plan, we should know this. From Abraham to what we're seeing in our own day, it's always international. It's multinational. It's not just us. It's been about the nations. We're a means to help bring that to pass. Now, sometimes people talk about the Great Commission like it's sort of God's plan B. Israel didn't quite get it. They failed. And so God had to resort to plan B and take it to the nations. Give the Gentiles a shot, right? But God's plan has always been to have a people for himself, every tongue, tribe, and nation. And we see images of that, little foretastes of it. Rahab, Ruth, Naaman, just to name a few from the Old Testament. Friends, that's why as a church, that's what we want to be passionate about, taking this gospel to the nations so that the people of God would reflect the sort of multi-ethnic character of God. Because In case this is new, God's not white. Jesus is not an American Messiah to reinforce American values. No, the Bible teaches the whole earth will one day bow to a Middle Eastern laborer from modern-day Palestine. The whole earth will bow to that man. It's why Jesus founded the church in Matthew 16. It's why he commissions the church in Matthew 28 to spread this news, because this news is not the kind of thing that comes around by political coup. It doesn't come through social revolution. It's not accomplished by a political party or by some legislative agenda or judicial appointments or a new social contract, right? It's why in this church we care less about voter cards than raising up people who can take this gospel and share this gospel to the nations. It's why we'll spend more time praying, as I did earlier, about evangelism, right, than about elections. It's not that elections are unimportant, But God's plan is so clear. You know, it's why Trey Richardson and and Howard Hamilton have been gathering after these services, training individuals on how to share the gospel, how to help people understand the gospel. Because at the end of the day, this gospel comes about not through coercion. It's through proclamation, through sharing. Now, when is this restoration that Amos is speaking of, when does it take place? Well, I don't think, given all the promises, it certainly can't be when Israel comes back. Israel will be exiled. Some of Israel, the southern kingdom, is going to come back in the 6th century. But these things aren't fully fulfilled. I don't think that's what Amos is speaking to. Nor do I think he's speaking about the modern nation state of Israel, founded in 1948. I don't think he's speaking about a physical temple being rebuilt with sacrifices being made again. Right, again, these promises come through the one who's the fulfillment of that booth of David. They come through Jesus, who tabernacled among us, you know, according to John, who made his followers into the temple, the temple of the living God, 1 Peter 2. His church that Paul defines as what is the new Israel of God, Galatians 6. You know, so there's been a lot of hubbub recently over our own president moving our American embassy to Jerusalem, right, formally recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. 
Now, as a matter of foreign policy, I mean, that may be just fine. I'll leave that for others to discuss as a matter of foreign policy. But as a matter of biblical prophecy, I don't think that's what Amos is teaching. He's envisioned something much greater. The land where God has planted his people is across the globe. It is across the globe, which means this glorious future is found in Jesus for everyone, Jew and Gentile, who are willing to be called by his name, which means, friends, if you come in this morning and you don't know this Jesus, you have no hope of a future like this. Friends, this can be your future. There are always words of judgment as we and ourselves choose to sin and rebel against God. But in his kindness, he always speaks words of hope, even as we see in Amos, of restoration. If we turn, recognizing, yes, we have sinned against a holy and a good God who's done nothing but good for us. And we've sinned against him, but Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. None of us would live. Died on the cross as a penalty for our sins. Rose again from the grave. Proof positive that he conquered sin and death. And all we have to do is not work for it and try to earn it and merit it, but receive it by the empty hands of faith as we repent of our sins and believe upon him. That is how this future future is secured for all who would trust in this Jesus. We all can become children of God. But friend, it's not a future for everyone. It's tragically one most will reject, most of Israel will reject it. It's for the remnant Right, the remnant that believe. So friend, do you believe? Do you believe this gospel? What's holding you back from believing this gospel? Ask yourself that question. Talk to a friend who brought you. What would be holding you back from this kind of a future with this kind of a God who promises this kind of a hope and is so patient? Well, friends, how do we know this future is secure? We've talked about how glorious it is, who it's for, but even if we think this is our future, how do we know this future is secure? Well, this brings us to our final, our third and final point. How do we know it's secure? Because listen, if you've done any reading, you know there have been lots of utopian visions throughout history. And it's one thing to begin them, it's a whole different thing to sustain them, to sustain such a vision, even to secure such visions. Because dreams of a golden age, they're not new. Right? Religious leaders, political leaders have always had them. Plato had it in his own republic. Thomas More, Henry David Thoreau, Leo Tolstoy, all had their own golden ages. Their own golden ages. Some would be brought about by communism, others by capitalism. Even ISIS had their own notion of a caliphate to bring about a golden age. So what makes this golden age that Amos talks about, what makes it any different? It's because Christians are actually that much wiser and stronger and better than the rest. Not at all. God chose Israel, Deuteronomy 7, because she, in fact, was small and insignificant. It's a good thing to remember. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says the same thing. God says he specifically chose, what, the weak and the foolish of the world. Friends, that's us. That's us. Friends, if this future is to be secure, it cannot be on our account. It has to be on God's account. Has to be on his, which is exactly what we see. Right, notice all the language in verses 11 to 15. I will raise up the booth of David, 9-11. The implied I, right? I will repair its breaches. I will raise up its ruins. I will rebuild it, 9-14. I will restore the fortunes of my people, 9-15. I will plant them on their land, right? End of verse 12, all this comes to, to pass, declares the Lord who what? The Lord who does this, 
It's the Lord who does this. Friend, if you are a Christian, your future is secure, not because you have kept all of God's promises, but because he has kept his promises, because he has been faithful. Friends, these these verses are a beautiful picture of God's work. It's a reminder of his work in salvation. Right? If you're a Christian, did you choose Jesus? Yes, absolutely you did. But not before he first chose you. John 15, 16, Jesus declared, You did not choose me first, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Right, Ephesians 1, 4, what does Paul say? For God chose us in him when before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless and love before him. So before you ever took a breath, God determined, if you're in Christ, that he would breathe new life into you. Did you save yourself from your sins? Was it you that hung there on the cross as a penalty for your sins? Of course it wasn't. Is it you who finally determined that you would grow in grace and never fail? Well, no, that's not you either. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Do we contribute anything to our salvation? Well, absolutely we do. There is one thing we bring to the table, one grand contribution we make. It's our sin. That's what we bring. Salvation is God's work. It's not a gift to the righteous. It's a gift to the guilty. It's not a reward for all the good we do. It's his gift to us. Right? So we can tie a bow on it, put a frame around it, what all we want to do. This is God's work. God's work. And friends, that's what you've got to see this morning. If you're in Christ, is your future secure? You'll have those days where you're, you're going to wonder, those mornings you're going to wonder, those evenings you go to bed, you'll wonder the same. But friend, you've got to see that God has committed himself to you before you ever committed yourself to him. He has shown himself faithful to you before you've ever truly been faithful to him. And he won't give up on you even when you've given up on him. Why? Because you've conquered this life, you've nailed it, you've aced it, you've got this life down. No, our futures aren't secured because we've conquered it. He has. His life has assured that. His has accomplished it. Friend, this God has you. Amos is saying he has you. You are his. This is his work. The one who saved you will certainly deliver you. What did we sing earlier? I will hold me fast? No, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Now, it's not in this life that you never let go. Now, the reality is our faith grows cold, as we sang about. In this life, we often let go. God doesn't. That's the point. He doesn't let go. So in this life, if you think about it, we walk hand in hand with God. The problem is it's full of bogs and quicksand and crashing waves, all of those things. And there are times when we are overwhelmed and exhausted and the weight of it all seems too great and in our exhaustion we do let grow. Our grip is too weak. And if salvation rests upon the strength of our own grip, our ability to slog it out, our ability to hold fast, we're doomed. But Amos's point is that it doesn't. It rests on God. It rests not in the strength of our own hand, but in the strength of his hand, the Lord's hand. Even Israel, despite all her sin, all that she had done, right, everything we've read in Amos, 
the centuries of sin that piled up leading to this point, God still holds fast to them. There is still a remnant. And friend, just as he would deliver them home, so he will deliver you. God does that work. Did you notice even how the passage ends? All these glorious things, all these glorious things will happen, says the Lord your God. Nine and a half punishing chapters. This is the Lord God, the sovereign God, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. The picture is that God has taken up his battle gear and stands in opposition to his people. And yet you get these promises, and how does the book close? He's the Lord, your God. Your God. I mean, what a beautiful term. What an encouragement to these Israelites. He's still their God. They haven't lost him. He hasn't abandoned them yet. He's going to fulfill his purposes for his people. Why? Because they're so worthy? No, they bear his name. He's tied his own fame to the future of his people, and so he will not neglect them. Friends, when God's name is on the line, he always comes through, perfectly clutched, like ice in his veins. He does not fail. So their history could proclaim all their failures, but God would still promise his people a future. Oh, friend, what a beautiful reminder that even in our greatest sin, we're never beyond the Lord's mercy. Never beyond his mercy. This God, he's still their God. And he can be your God. Because friends, we don't know what the life holds. What our lives hold, what our futures hold, none of us know that. You know, it's been hard. This past Wednesday was just another horrifying reminder of that reality. As you had 17, some young, some not so young, men and women alike. It's Valentine's Day. They had their plans. They had a future. Their futures, many of them looked bright, looked hopeful. But there was another who entered that school with a more sinister plan. And on that day, he took their lives, he stole their lives. Friends, you can read a horoscope all you want. Horoscopes are worthless in that moment. They're worthless. Couldn't help them, couldn't protect them, couldn't deliver them, couldn't secure this future for them. Friends, we don't know what our lives hold. We don't know when our lives will be taken from us. But we can trust this one whose life was taken from him, who in fact gave it up for us in order to secure this future for us. Friend, this world, it's a punishing reminder. Sin still reigns, it does, but it won't forever. It's why Jesus came once, and it's why he promises to come again. Because there will come a day when the blessings of God are secured by God for the people of God according to the promises of God and those who trust in them. That future exists. That's the future Amos holds out to us. Friends, is that your future? Any certainty that that is your future? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise for these verses. We give you praise that we can read through nine and a half chapters of Israel's sin 
and your right judgment. And yet, as we read the scriptures, it's never the last word. Oh, you are a just God, and you do bring right judgments upon sin, as any just judge must. And yet, as those who are guilty, you provide a way through Jesus Christ, a way for another to bear our guilt and our shame that we wouldn't have to. Oh, we see that already in Amos, securing a future for your people. Oh, God, we pray that would be our future. There's no other place to look. And God, we pray that you'd work this in us, this hope in us, we pray, according to Jesus Christ. Amen.